2016 was a year filled with interesting news and stories of research and discoveries through translational science. And throughout the year, CTSI Discovery Radio brought you lots of them. On today's show, we'll revisit some of the important stories we shared with you, like how our medical industry hopes to revolutionize healthcare and treat diseases in our country. What the Precision Medicine Initiative hopes to do is to help us do a better job with very common conditions where we know that it's not one gene that causes the problem. And so by identifying a number of those factors, be able to make useful information available to patients and their doctors in terms of what they're at risk for. An emerging disease that made international headlines. Zika is prominent on the headline page, but basically over 99% probably really will not have any problem or long-term problems, even if they do get infected. It's a very small population that we're really focused on, but because the outcomes are so severe, we want to do everything we can to prevent those infections. And some amazing alternative therapies for providing treatment to our U.S. military service veterans. Put somebody who has a physical and emotional or psychological condition on a horse and it translates to some pretty incredible therapeutic outcomes. What I've found with post-traumatic stress disorder, playing this guitar with that first chord, you realize, I can do this. And you start building on that. With dogs, we match up energetically, and we don't send each other away. We actually draw closer. And later, we'll take a look back at some of the exciting things our CTS Eye on the Community focused on during 2016. It's our special year-in-review show as we reflect on what we learned during 2016 inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer, and I appreciate spending the next 30 minutes with you as we discover together. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighters Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. At the beginning of the year, when President Obama gave his final State of the Union address, he announced that his 2016 fiscal budget called for $215 million in support for the Precision Medicine Initiative, or PMI, a groundbreaking initiative designed to accelerate biomedical research and discoveries. Thanks to the breakthrough of having completely sequenced the human genome, medical science now understands the healthcare needs of individuals based on their unique DNA makeup better than ever and can hopefully custom tailor new and highly effective care in treating them. In short, precision medicine is personalized treatment for the unique needs of individuals, or as some have put it, the right treatment for the right person at the right time. We spoke with some local doctors who shared their insights and perspectives on the present and future of the Precision Medicine Initiative. First, we heard from Dr. Jeffrey Whittle, Doctor of Internal Medicine at the Zablocki VA Medical Center and Professor at Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Whittle hopes that with the complete mapping of the human genome, 
precision medicine will result in better targeting of diagnoses, treatments, and preventions of diseases. Well, I think that precision medicine has a lot of potential, but I think in the first place we'll see is that there'll be much more targeting that starts with prevention. So some people will be seen at much higher risk for a condition and may be appropriate for very intensive monitoring, say one of the cancers. Somebody who was currently targeted for every other year mammography might be somebody who should get mammography every six months, whereas some people, we may see that it's probably safe to let that person go five years in between studies. Second, as we treat things, particularly when we use drugs, we'll have two benefits. First, in the era of precision medicine, the doctor who's prescribing your medication will be able to look at your genomic profile and say, oh, you're somebody who's probably going to respond well to this medication as opposed to that medication, or somebody who's going to have a bad reaction if you take this medication, we should stay away from it. So both by avoiding the adverse drug reactions and by being able to find the more effective therapy for a specific condition, precision medicine will hopefully make people receive more accurate and more helpful therapy. We also spoke with Dr. Gilbert White, Executive Vice President for Research at Blood Center of Wisconsin and Professor at Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. White agrees that precision medicine is a great approach, though he's quick to point out that it's not exactly an entirely new one. I think we already do precision medicine in some areas. Cancer treatment over the past 10, 15, 20 years has become more individualized. Uh, as we've understood the human genome, we've developed some approaches that are based on genetics. But I think it's gathering momentum. I think it will have profound changes on how we treat various diseases. But I think it is going to have an impact and it's going to be for the better. But while he doesn't view precision medicine as necessarily a new thing, we asked Dr. White if he sees more examples of it in the diagnostic work and research being conducted at Blood Center of Wisconsin. I do. Anytime we treat patients with blood thinners, we have the option of using genetic data, if available, to tailor that treatment. Uh, diagnostically, having genetic information enables us to diagnose proper treatment regimens. Molecular medicine and uh, genetic information is helping us to develop new ways of treating patients and new approaches to therapy. One of the primary long-term goals of the Precision Medicine Initiative is the National Institutes of Health creation of an unprecedented database of over one million volunteers willing to share their DNA and other medical information. The hope is that building this massive database will help fuel the PMI's ongoing progress. Dr. Jeffrey Whittle believes that it will speed up precision medicine's effectiveness in diagnosing, treating, and preventing both rare and common diseases. We've been able to find examples of genes that predict diseases for many years in some rare conditions like cystic fibrosis. But what the Precision Medicine Initiative hopes to do is to help us do a better job with very common conditions, things like diabetes, heart disease, and hypertension, where we know that it's not one gene that causes the problem. By enrolling a large, large number of participants, you'll be able to look at the genetic factors that increase the risk of things like diabetes and then be able to make a fair amount of useful information available to patients and their doctors in terms of what they're at risk for. And what could this national database mean for our community on a more local level? Individuals here in Milwaukee and, and really throughout southeastern Wisconsin and the rest of the state will have the opportunity to actually volunteer for this, put their names forward as people who are interested in this, and then would be contacted and be allowed to donate a sample of blood, perhaps a 
swab from inside of the mouth that would include some cells and give some medical history, and that would make them potential participants in this precision medicine cohort. Meanwhile, Dr. Gilbert White says it's important to keep in mind that, at the heart of it, the Precision Medicine Initiative and the database hoped as a result of it isn't a national or regional thing. It's not even local. It's individual. It's people who come to understand what their genome is and how it affects their disease and their response to treatment are going to benefit. If you have your genome done and I don't have my genome done, having your genome done doesn't help me. Uh, I've got to have my genome done because my genome's different. So I, I don't look at it as a regional or a local thing. I look at it as an individual thing. That's what it is. You can learn more by listening to this entire show, episode 21, titled The Precision Medicine Initiative. You'll find it along with all of our shows from 2016 on our CTSI website. We continue with our special year-in-review edition with a look back to the spring when an emerging disease was making headlines, and it remains in the news as we head into the new year. Early in 2016, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a travel warning for those heading to and from specific areas of the world affected by the Zika virus. The warning was especially aimed at pregnant women, as the mosquito-borne disease has been identified as a probable cause of serious defects in newborn children. We brought you information on Zika virus based on what was known to that point, and we explored what the risk level is in our country. In doing so, we spoke with Dr. Ann Powers, Chief of the Alpha Virus Laboratory Division of Vector-Borne Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Powers recognized that there is risk for contracting Zika virus in parts of the U.S., though she doesn't believe it presents high risk for most people. Well, as far as what we consider the risk to the United States, it's certainly any area that has the appropriate vectors. We don't necessarily consider that there will be high risk because there's a number of factors which would keep outbreaks from being very large in the United States. And I think a good example is to look back at our previous dengue virus outbreaks that have occurred in the United States, and they've been relatively small scale for the most part. So we would anticipate something similar with Zika if we were to have local mosquito-borne transmission. Which is great news. But what are the symptoms if you were to have Zika transmitted to you? The fact is, for most people, they're surprisingly very mild. Symptoms for most people are so mild that they may not even know they're infected. Right now, we're estimating that somewhere around 80% of people are actually asymptomatic, so they would have no indication that they've been infected. For the 20 or so percent who do actually show symptoms, they tend to be fairly mild. There's a very low-grade fever. They have a rash that shows up. Sometimes they may have arthralgia, conjunctivitis, so kind of red eyes. Very mild symptoms that usually resolve within just a few days. Then, what's the big deal about Zika virus? Dr. Powers told us there's evidence that the mosquito-borne illness does present more serious risk for some people, specifically pregnant women. There is very strong evidence at this point that there is a connection between Zika virus infection while the mother's pregnant and poor fetal outcomes, spontaneous abortions, birth defects. So the big focus relates to the fact that it does seem to be linked to causing these birth defects, and they're very severe birth defects. So we clearly don't want babies to be born with this if we can give preventative information to help people keep from getting exposed during their pregnancy. There hasn't been an infectious agent associated with a new birth defect for over 50 years. So this is something that we want to look at very closely to make sure that there aren't other viruses that could be causing these same sorts of problems as well that we just haven't discovered. 
discovered. According to Dr. Powers, how concerned should we be about the Zika virus? Well, that depends. If you're pregnant or planning a pregnancy in the near future, the concern people should have is if they are pregnant to really try and take steps to prevent becoming infected during their pregnancy. If people are thinking about trying to become pregnant, there's some steps that we recommend on our website about trying to avoid infection prior to pregnancy because we don't have some information, for example, on how long the virus persists in semen. That's the area of focus that we want people to look at is prevent infection of pregnant women or those who are trying to become pregnant. But for everybody else... Those people should have very little concern about the outcomes associated with Zika because over 99% probably really will not have any problem or long-term problems associated with the Zika, even if they do get infected. It's a very small population that we're really focused on, but because the outcomes are so severe, we want to do everything we can to prevent those infections. Also from our show on Zika, we heard from Dr. Grayson Brown, Principal Investigator of the Public Health Entomology Laboratory and Professor of Entomology at the University of Kentucky, who shared his expert insight on Zika virus and the mosquitoes that spread it. We asked Dr. Brown how many total varieties of mosquitoes are known to exist, and of them, how many are known to carry the Zika virus. There's about 3,000 species of mosquitoes worldwide. In North America, we have about 160 species. In a typical Midwestern state, you have about 60 or so species. That said, there's really only about 30 or 40 species important from the public health perspective out of all those 3,000. And of the ones that transmit Zika, we have several that can transmit Zika in the laboratory, but in the field in terms of driving epidemics in human populations, there's two known for sure. One of those two is the Asian tiger mosquito. The Asian tiger mosquito biotype that we have in North America is from northern Japan. The only one that's been shown to transmit Zika in human populations is an African biotype. So we don't know that the Asian tiger mosquito we have here in North America is going to be an important player as Zika moves into North America. So at this point, we're thinking just and when we asked Dr. Brown if he expected to see those mosquitoes carrying the virus here in the U.S., he told us... Any day now, yeah. I mean, it's already ramping up. We're expecting to see hundreds of thousands of Zika cases in Puerto Rico. Aedes aegypti is active in Key West right now. It has been for a month. So any day now, somebody's going to contract Zika from Aedes aegypti in the Florida Keys or Miami or someplace in the extreme southern part of Florida. And he was right, because as we got into summer and fall, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had issued warnings for people living in or traveling to South Florida due to confirmed cases of Zika. Zika in that area. Finally, Dr. Brown told us that there are things individuals and even entire communities can do to prevent the spread of Zika virus. In fact, he said it's our social responsibility to do so. These mosquitoes, container breeders, are really effectively fought by individuals cleaning up their own yards. People really need to think of having mosquitoes breeding in their yards as being as socially unacceptable as drinking and driving. So if people will cooperate with the mosquito control authorities in their area, that'll really help a lot. Want to learn more about Zika? Listen to this entire show, episode 26, titled Emerging Disease, Zika Virus. You'll find it on our CTSI website at ctsi.mcw.edu.
Earlier this year, we paid respect to our U.S. military veterans during the Memorial Day and Independence Day holidays. Around this time, we focused our show on treatments for veterans who suffer from long-lasting, serious effects of their military life in their civilian life. It's estimated that around 8% of our total population suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. But the rate is much higher among military veterans, ranging from 10 to 30% based on the intense nature of their work. While traditional therapies can help improve someone's condition, some truly innovative alternative therapies are emerging. For our July show, we told you about three of them right here in our community. First, we headed to Life Striders in Waukesha to learn about the equine-assisted therapy and activities they provide for people suffering from PTSD and other conditions. President and CEO Veronica Sosa told us how Life Striders began. Originally, I worked in the inner city where there was a lot of gang violence, started having a lot of experience with post-traumatic stress disorder. Eventually, I met my husband, who was a physical therapist and had done therapeutic writing in Montana while he was training and he kept telling me about the benefits of it and eventually I started taking some of my boys to a farm that did therapeutic writing and I realized there was this amazing transformation that happened with them in a way that I could never get to them in an office and I was sold and didn't make a whole lot of sense for us to stay in Los Angeles. My husband's originally from Oconomowoc. We decided to move to Wisconsin to start Life Striders. So what is it about horses that make them especially effective in providing benefits movement that can be therapeutic for the rider. When you put somebody who has a physical and emotional or psychological condition on a horse, it actually stimulates the brain neurologically very similar to what walking and running does. And so what the horse's movement does is it kind of tricks the brain into thinking that the body's actually moving as if it were walking or running. Because of that, we can stimulate parts of the brain that either may have sustained some type of atrophy or chemically, neurochemically, it's producing these feel-good hormones, and it translates to some pretty incredible therapeutic outcomes. Next, we went from equine therapy to canine therapy, as we heard from Linda Bobit and Dan Van Buskirk, co-founders of Hounds and Veterans Empowered Now, or HAVEN. Linda, a certified dog trainer, told us why dogs can be effective in providing healing benefits for some veterans. I think it's the historical lives we've had with dogs. Why is that the animal who lives with us, shares our bed, eats our food? One of the big things is we match up energetically. We're affected by each other's energy and we don't send each other away. We actually draw closer and we read faces. So a lot of conversation goes on many times where there's not any words spoken at all. It's just we're together. With service dogs now being the focus of a clinical study being conducted through the Zablocki VA Medical Center, Haven's Dan Van Buskirk, a PTSD sufferer himself, is hopeful that the anecdotal success he's already seeing will be validated by the study. What we're trying to do is give the veterans tools to get past the distorted thoughts because with being in extreme trauma day after day with hardly a grieving process, millions of distorted thoughts come in about how we're not enough to save our teammates, we're not enough to have success in that job that's so radically different from the high risk that we took every day. So the dogs give us a chance to focus on them. Anything we can do to get the veteran to focus on anything but the distorted thoughts gives him a stone in the pathway out of that. 
and what has working with Haven and service dogs meant for Dan in his own recovery. Working with Linda has been one of the best experiences of my life. There isn't a day when we don't see the dogs that we're not just really happy because they just do that to you. The dogs just uplift everyone around them. It's been some of the happiest moments of my life, and it's been vital, I think, in my recovery. Finally, we learned how guitars can be literally an instrument for recovery. Patrick Nettesheim is a professional musician and co-founder of Guitars for Vets, and he told us how making music provides healing and improving the quality of life for veterans suffering from PTSD. It allows somebody to step out of the noise of life long enough to be in that moment and to feel good. It might not take away pain, but we all know that by getting yourself focused on something different that you can be totally absorbed into, the pain is less because we tend to not focus on it. These internal wounds of PTSD, it's really hard to categorize where you are in your recovery. But Guitars for Vets opens up windows of serenity. Guitars for Vets puts the healing power of music into the hands of military heroes. And Patrick Nettesheim wants vets suffering from PTSD to know that they are not removed from joy. We see veterans come in not able to smile or not wanting to smile. There is a dramatic change within a very short amount of time. Once these men and women open up, it's just amazing how honest they are and how much I've learned about the world through them. They learn a lot from civilians. Civilians learn a lot from vets. I think it's a great way to educate the community and hopefully the world on what is post-traumatic stress disorder. If you'd like to learn more about Life Striders, Haven, and Guitars for Vets, you can hear these entire interviews and more by listening to Episode 27, Alternative Therapies for PTSD. It's on our CTSI website. Throughout the year, we keep our CTS eye on the community, and 2016 was no different. Early in the year, an amazing exhibit called Genome Unlocking Life's Code was presented at Discovery World Science and Technology Center in Milwaukee through a collaborative partnership with the Medical College of Wisconsin, and we took you there on a virtual tour. The 4,000-square-foot interactive exhibit included stations like this one, where you heard stories of positive outcomes from advancements in genomic research. I would not be alive today if it weren't for these targeted medicines that have come about as a result of genetic testing and the ability to target treatments. She came to me with a newly diagnosed lung cancer. She was obviously very shocked and surprised to find this. She was in her 30s. She was a lifelong never-smoker. Dr. Rudin did suggest that genetic testing. I didn't fit the typical profile of a lung cancer patient that it was more likely that I would have a mutation. The partnership between Medical College of Wisconsin and Discovery World will bring future exhibits to Milwaukee, providing positive impact for our community, and we'll be sure to tell you about them. During National Trauma Awareness Month in May, our CTS Eye on the Community focused on Frederick Hospital's Forever Changed program, which stages mock crash scenes at area high schools to drive home the devastating consequences of drinking or texting while driving and lack of seatbelt use. Annette Bertelson is Trauma Program Manager for Frederick Hospital. To date, we have done a total of 19 schools and 35 crashes. 
what we try to do is target the spring and the fall when the fall is homecoming and the spring is prom, so times when they could be doing more risky behavior than they probably normally would have been. We do them usually on a rotational basis of every other year for some schools. It depends upon the schools. We even took you to the scene of a forever changed mock crash when one was staged at New Berlin West High School. Tanner, a senior, shared the very serious role he played in the mock crash. I am playing the drunk driver in today's exercise. I'm the guy who causes the crash and comes away with the least injuries, but yet has to deal with the fact that I killed a person, paralyzed a person, and I am in jail for the better part of my adult life. With student actors in place, hundreds of their classmates view the scene merely a few yards away. Dispatch 1310. We have two vehicles head-on collision. Major damage well, appears we have one person partially ejected out of the vehicle. Dr. Terry Darun Cassini is lead investigator of a clinical study of the Forever Changed Mock Crash Program. To find out, is the program benefiting students in the way of changing what they believe they should be doing or shouldn't be doing related to driving? And are they actually changing engagement in those risky behaviors, whereby we're seeing a reduction in risky driving behaviors after the mock crash program? As students headed back to school this year, we turned our attention to Project Adam, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin's program that's dramatically increased cardiac emergency awareness, training, and equipment in schools throughout Wisconsin and across the U.S. Administrator Allie Thompson shared how Project Adam began. Project Adam began after the death of Adam Lemmel. He was playing basketball with his high school team at Whitefish Bay. He collapsed, and what happened is he had a sudden cardiac arrest. When Adam collapsed, there was no AED or comprehensive plan at Adam's school to respond to a cardiac arrest. Allie told us how Project Adam has helped place automated external defibrillators, or AEDs, in schools with one important goal in mind. The goal of Project Adam is to save lives. And to save a life, we need to have steps in place, trained staff, AEDs in place, and a communicative plan that everybody knows what each other's part is in the event of a collapse. So is Project Adam working? Allie told us that as of 2016, Project Adam has saved 100 lives nationwide. We are lucky to have some of the survivors actually speak out, and when you hear them tell their story, it's just priceless. 100 lives is a testament to carrying on Adam Lemmel's legacy. And when the family and Children's Hospital began the program locally, I don't think they ever dreamed that the program would have the ability to save 100 lives. It's a wonderful time to pause and reflect and celebrate, but also a call to action to all of our schools that aren't partnered with Project Adam. Also in 2016, our CTS Eye on the Community focused on a clinical study by the Freighter and Medical College of Wisconsin's Eye Institute that's providing free eye screenings in our Latino community. The project's known as Mobile Teleophthalmology for Community Eye Screenings, or MTOX. To learn more, we turn to Al Castro, Program Director of the Latino Geriatric Center, a division of the United Community Center in Milwaukee, and co-investigator of the MTOX project. We know that we have a high rate of diabetes in the Latino community, and there's been a major increase in the past 10 years or so. So right now, I think our prevalence rate is about 9.6 people out of 100 with diabetes among the Latino population. But we also know many Latinos do not practice good preventive medicine 
you might say. So diabetes can affect other parts of the body. Specifically, what this project is about is the impact it has on the eyes. Al told us that there are several barriers that brought about the critical need for bringing free mobile eye screenings into the Latino community. To start with, I guess, just lack of knowledge. The other barrier is if I'm a Latino and I don't speak English that well, I go out to this eye institute and nobody looks like me. They don't speak my language. Another is what if I have limited insurance, but I have no insurance. And then, of course, the distance driving those places. So those were barriers that have gotten in the way of people practicing good eye health. And he recognized the importance of the CTSI supporting the MTOX project with a 2016 pilot award. I'm glad to see the whole push from CTSI in expanding the amount of community translation efforts being done, especially in the Latino community. And it's not just Milwaukee. I'm talking about the nation as a whole. We are just not that much involved in health research. So these kind of projects will go a long ways to opening doors to get more Latinos involved into health research that will improve the health of the community and help engage more academic universities to get into the Latino community. Once again, if you'd like to hear the complete interviews on the MTOX Project, Forever Changed Program, or Project Adam, you can listen to all of our shows from 2016 on our CTSI website. And with that, we've reached the end of this special year in review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio as we approach the end of 2016. This is the point of our show where we usually thank our guests. But today, I wish to thank you for supporting CTSI Discovery Radio throughout 2016. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again in 2017 as we bring you another year of shows with topics covering the latest in translational science discoveries and clinical trial successful outcomes. Throughout 2017, CTSI Discovery Radio will continue to air the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar to join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happy holidays and a healthy new year. For more information about translational research or to listen to any of our 2016 programs online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. And while you're there, please be sure to sign up as a community member. We need your help as we strive to advance clinical and translational team science and improve the health of our community and people worldwide. Also, remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer. Co-produced by Tom Crawford and Jeremy Kuzniar in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.